Hello and welcome to Say That, the podcast for your big questions, get real answers. My name is Matt King. I'm your host here in the city of Chicago. Joining us here is Joe Brewer. Delighted to be here. With us all the way from Rope Cruise, Tennessee, Lee Younger. I am as well. Hello. We've got uh, the, two, the two schools of radio voice podcasting thought there. Uh, Lee's keeping it, keeping it more natural, and uh, Jed really leaned into the, uh, the drive time voice. We'll see. The magic of old time <laughs> radio. That's right. This episode of Say That is brought to you by Smegman's Powder. <laughs> <laughs> so when you do it that way, all I can think about is that last, uh, that, you know, Secretariat winning the Triple Crown and. He's moving like a tremendous machine. Yes, absolutely right. <laughs> we have now we have now gone into uh, references that none of us, not even our parents, were like alive for at this point. I believe. Yeah, yeah. Is, yeah. Some things predate us all. Yes, I, Siri didn't get that either, as you may have noticed. Uh, you, she could yeah. have. I think she was referring to the reference. <laughs> that <laughs> well, is a, it, it. It predates Siri. Yeah, if Tim Cook, if you're listening, if you could uh, write that into the the Siri functionality, I would in uh, that would help me personally. If just I could say a reference into it, and it could just tell me how arcane that was for a general audience. Just like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is this sitcom something anybody remembers? I didn't get that. Well, never mind. <laughs> it's like Friends. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, speaking of things from a previous generation, uh, maybe a couple of generations ago, uh, before we get to your fine questions on the show, Oof. we have to start with a sponsorship emergency. Ooh. Now, is that emergency that we are 520 episodes in and still no offers of sponsorship? Uh, no, nope, that's about to be expected. But maybe we can learn a lesson from uh, someone who has pulled in a lot of money. And just start doing the ads in the hope that someone will sponsor us. <laughs> because uh, a couple weeks back, a gentleman that we have all had the displeasure of knowing exists named Franklin Graham uh, took to Twitter to share his experience with the world, as, as many Twitter users do. And this time he was sparing us his thoughts on wokeism or cancel culture or uh, interface struggle or whatever it is he normally tweets about. Uh, tweet this. My mother was born in China, grew up in China, and I think at Panda Express is some of the best Chinese food in America. I had fried rice and teriyaki chicken tonight, and it was great. There's a picture of him holding up a Panda Express cup label out, smiling for the camera. This is this is not right, but at this point, Franklin Graham is so old that I'm assuming that what's in the Panda Express cup is just warm milk. <laughs> There's a lot there's a lot bad going on here, but I think the idea Lee, you putting in my mind the idea of eating fried rice and teriyaki chicken with warm milk <laughs> is one of the worst things that's ever happened to me. Yeah. That's amazing, dude. That is a very unpleasant uh textural experience. <laughs> the best Chinese food in America. Yeah. It it's not. I, I can strongly, strongly tell you it is not that. It's not. And I love the, uh, the, my credentials, my bona fides for this are that my mother was born in China and grew up in China. And therefore, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Which, I, for those of you who don't know, my, my wife actually uh, 
moved to China after kindergarten and lived there um, and lived in Southeast Asia throughout the rest of high school. And um, that does not give me the right to tell anybody what the best Chinese food is. And I'm certainly not going to tell you it's Panda Express. (laughs) (laughs) Well, people on the internet in the, in the thread when he tweeted this made the point, but it is the literal version of the office joke where Steve Carell goes to New York yes. and goes to Sbarro. My, my favorite little New York pizza place. Yeah. Sbarro. I, here's the thing about Chinese food, much like Mexican food. And it's one of the, one of the great uh, boons of multiculturalism in America is pretty much any town with over like 15,000 people in it has a really good Mexican and probably pretty good Chinese restaurant. Yep. Right. And that's a beautiful thing. Um, Panda Express is a, I'm in this mall food court slash airport and I just need something that's not fried. Yeah. And the hibachi place's line is too long. So I guess I'll go to Panda. Yeah. Yes. It's we, we've all ended up at Panda Express in our life and it's always been for lack of options. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's, this is a small nerdy detail, but it, it is important to me. So, like, if you look at a Panda Express menu, there's, you know, a dozen and a half menu options, and they are all derivatives of Chinese food. I mean, they all sure. kind of, you know, come from that. I No one would describe it as authentic. With one exception, teriyaki, which they serve, is not Chinese. That's right. It is specifically and dramatically not Chinese food. And... um you managed out of all the menu items that you could pick. That is the item that you picked. It's like saying, I absolutely love this Chinese restaurant, especially the burritos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's that offensive. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Teriyaki, for those playing along at home. Is Japanese. Yes. Yes. Hey, but Franklin knows because his mom grew up in China, guys. <laughs> so you can trust his bona fides on that. <laughs> the thing that's killing me with this is there has to be, what was the inciting incident? Like, this dude did not just randomly decide, I'm going to do a post shilling for Panda Express because no one has ever in their life had that thought. So what happened that you did this? Like, I certainly mean the obvious, you know, Occam's razor, the obvious choice is that Panda, you know, slipped you some cash, you know, help spread the word. But there's no evidence that happened. And I'm trying to construct scenarios in my head other than that that explain it. And like, it's like sometimes in life you find a really, really good puzzle. And it's like, you can't solve it, but it just delights your brain to work on it. And this is that puzzle for me. How did we wind up with this completely insane tweet? Well, Jed, I have another piece of information that is not going to help, but is going to add to that. And that is, this is not the first time that Franklin Graham has tweeted a best we can tell totally unbidden uh, endorsement for Panda Express. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. (laughs) August the 30th, 2016, he tweeted, enjoyed at Panda Express at BU tweets with that's Boston University Union Court today, Union Court after today's Decision America tour prayer rally in Boston. And the picture is him 
standing in like in front of the line, giving a thumbs up. And you know, the emoji <laughs> that's meant to show indifference where the mouth is a perfectly horizontal line. He's making that face. That's true. Okay, so now my next fantasy is I want to be in the boardroom of Panda Express when they realize this has happened. Because it's like, on the one hand, I mean, people are talking about Panda Express. That's good. On the other hand, man, we do not want to be associated with this guy. And I love trying to thread the needle on what do you do with that. Okay, so now we enter the part of the emergency where we realize that this is a really sick parable for what's happening in evangelicalism in general, which is. This is not who we want speaking for us. He's acting like he knows things and has the right to talk about what this product is. He doesn't know anything. He's pushing other stuff that's not our thing as the thing. Teriyaki, uh, you know, nationalism, whatever. No, don't speak for us. We did not pay you. So Lee, if I can, if I can break that down, what you're saying is there's some kind of overlap between this and Christianity, where Franklin Graham says, this version of a thing is the best thing. Trust me because of who my parent is. <laughs> exactly. And the thing that I'm telling you is the best version of a thing isn't even part of the thing <laughs> that I told you was the best version of the thing. Is demonstrably not that. Well, you may wonder how has Panda, the Panda Express Twitter account responded. And they have responded only in one small way which is someone quote tweeted the Franklin Graham tweet, uh, making fun of it. And then in the responses, someone said, I love Panda Express. This is a Twitter user guardian. O G E L. I'm sorry. Your, your username is too complicated. I can't give you credit. Your username is unpronounceable. Twitter user says, I loved Panda Express for a hot minute until one day I found a Band-Aid at the bottom of my fried rice. Wow. Now my whole family avoids it and calls it Band-Aid Express. A pretty apt metaphor of my relationship with the Southern Baptist Church. Oh. <laughs> Which is a great burn. And such a great burn that the Panda Express Twitter account responded. <laughs> said, hi there. Thank you for bringing that to our attention. Please DM us the Panda, the Panda address, which I hope is their in-house style for how they say that. You visited and a copy of the receipt so that we can follow up with notes with the store. Now, now I just want to hear Daryl from The Office tickling the ivories and making a song where he rhymes uh, Panda Address and Panda Express. Oh, yeah. yes. Oh, yes. We need that song. We we definitely need that song. Yes. A nation cries out for healing through the form of that. <laughs> I do like the idea. They didn't. I like the idea that they would also get sent just the address of the Southern Baptist Convention headquarters and wherever it is, mm -hmm. Nashville, I assume. And Panda Express would just show up to try to straighten that whole mess out. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, did the guy with the tweet, he's like this was a couple years ago, right? Yeah. Like like he's telling the story. So I love that Pan Express is like, "We're sure you still have the receipt from your visit several years ago that we will now follow up on." Right. Yeah, and also doesn't say like, "Please send it so we can refund you or something." Just we will follow up with the store, which is very <laughs> ominous. To go back to the idea that this whole thing is parabolic for the problem with Franklin Graham in general, I'm actually surprised that in his tweeting for Panda Express, he hasn't actively gone after the war that we are definitely in with other Chinese fast food restaurants. 
Oh. Like, oh, I love Panda Express. And of course, that means that we are in a holy fast food war with Magic Walk or whatever. <laughs> we have always been at war with East Asian Buffet. <laughs> well, the thing that I am most disappointed about in this whole thing is that I scrolled through the replies on Twitter, which is normally a terrible idea. But in this one, I didn't find what I was hoping for, which was throngs of previous Franklin Graham fans accusing him of being in league with President Xi to ruin American culture based on his love for Panda Express. Oh, yes, yes. And I feel like, I don't know, maybe they're all on Parlor now or what, but I just feel like if this were 2019, that would have happened. It's like their heart's not really, really in it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But back to, to Jed's uh, fun- fundamental question of what, what is this? <laughs> Did they slide him money? Does he just love it that much? Or is there a, the third option, which I hope it is, which is he's just going to keep doing this every little while until someone at Panda Express assumes they have a sponsorship deal with him and just cuts him a check. <laughs> It's a very it's a very Costanza esque scheme, right. but I feel like, you know, in this this go go digital age, yeah. you could just send them a screenshot, be like, "Hey guys, you never gave me the five hundred bucks for the tweet." And so I'd be like, I, "I guess we're paying them for tweets now." Well, you know, the one other option, which I really hope is true on a lot of levels, you know, is like Graham's a messed up dude. He's got a lot of struggles. He's got a lot of problems, but. I like the idea that for whatever reason, maybe it's childhood associations, like going to Panda Express is just his happy place. Like it's the one point in his life. Like he doesn't have to be on anything weird and crazy. He just, and he just loves Panda Express. Like it's just, it's his one thing. It's his refuge. In which case, here's my message to Franklin Graham. Keep going to Panda Express, man. Go there, go there every single day, spend more time, eat all of your meals at Panda Express, brother. And and per Jed's thing, like the 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 previous tweet that Matt talked about it what was it Boston University, Matt? Yeah. yeah. If you were to look that up and you'd see the picture, he's very clearly just in line. It's not like anybody at Panda Express has any idea who Franklin Graham is. They have they're not like he's not signing autographs. He's not famous there. He's just uh he's just a dude in line at this mall Panda Express in the food court. Yeah. And he's just happy as a clam. You know, he's just giving a big old thumbs up. They don't care. They're still making all the Panda Express food behind him. And I just think that's kind of precious. Yeah, yeah. Claim claim the freedom you're looking for, Franklin. Claim that delicious orange-glazed freedom that you need in your <laughs> life. So I, I will add one more layer of positivity to that, which is if Franklin Graham is tweeting about Panda Express, you know what he's not doing? <laughs> tweeting about anything else. That's true, Keep them dude. tweets coming, man. Feels like a win. So here, here's what I here. I'm going to make my <laughs> bid for a kind of in, in a Franklin Graham esque way. I'm going to act like we are. Uh, Elon Musk has hired us to be advisors for a new and probably worse Twitter. Sure. And just pitch this idea out here. Um, so you give Trump his account back, which they're probably going to do anyway, but he can only tweet about McDonald's. <laughs> wow. I think you 
political, all political figures of all stripes, I'll take it both right and left, can have Twitter accounts, but they can only tweet about fast food. Yeah. That feels like a better yeah, future dude. for us all. Yeah. Yeah, I, I support that. That's really good stuff. Yeah, it's multiple McChickens or your teriyaki <laughs> chicken or whatever it is you like. That's fine, but that's all you get to tweet about. Yeah. Just to, just just some like the minority whip. Just like, oh crap, it's Sunday. I can't have Chick Fil A. Yeah, <laughs> and that's all we hear from you. That kind of stuff. Oh, as as a final theory, maybe that's what it is. Maybe uh, this the Franklin Graham endorsement is a positioning for a Chick Fil A Panda Express kind of um, backdoor <laughs> deal where they're trying to push all the the Chick Fil A Sunday business to Panda Express. Yeah, because what it. did he get? The teriyaki chicken. That's, That's right. right. This is the only place Franklin can get a fried chicken drive through style thing happening on a Sunday. There it is. There it is. We've cracked the case. That's the move. And on that, we can declare emergency off. We're going to move forward to our first question. If you have a question for us, you can have this all the way to the end, and I will give you some ways to get in touch with this, or you can scroll down to your episode description and find your links there. Our first question comes in and says, how should I think about God's promises? Like everyone in the Bible isn't meant for me personally, and the ones I do get, I don't know when I'm going to get them or what it's really going to look like. Honestly, thinking about promises makes me kind of frustrated. And a very cool question. I think it's a very, very interesting take on that. And Lee, where do we kick this off? It's a really cool question. And, and I, we appreciate the honesty, too, of just saying, look, I got, some, I got some problems with this. Promises are supposed to be amazing, but uh, what if it isn't for me? I, I, this is a really, really cool take. I'll just share with you um, my own perspective uh, and my own experience. Um, as you say, some of the promises in the Bible were for very specific people for very specific purposes. There are certain promises in the Bible that don't pertain to me really in any way whatsoever, and yet when I see them come true for the person that they were promised for, that gives me hope that, that God is the kind of dude who keeps his word. And that's a helpful thing to know because, you know, if you believe in Jesus, you're in a relationship with him. And somebody that keeps their word, that's, that's, a, that's a really important part of a relationship. For me, promises in Scripture, they, they, help me with, um, they help me with perspective about certain things in my life, and they help me in the realm of comfort. Um, some of the promises in Scripture that do apply to us are things that have to do, uh, the, the ones that I particularly draw comfort from, are things that have to do with invisible realities and future hopes. I'm going to break both of those down for a minute. The Bible gives us promises about things that we can't see with our own eyes. Jesus told his disciples before he, like after he rose from the dead, and he appeared to them, and he hung out with them, and then he ascended, before he ascended into heaven, he said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This was an invisible reality that those guys started to experience. And it's not always something that you feel like 100% or you can, it's not something that you can prove mathematically or anything like that. But people throughout history who have a relationship with Jesus have experienced this. And that is something that gives me a lot of comfort. And it changes my perspective about difficult things I'm going through. The Bible has a lot of different promises about invisible realities, things like that, and a lot of different promises about future hopes. If you've listened to the show a lot, at some point you've heard 
Matt, quote, um, the verse in Revelation chapter, it's either 20 or 21, about how the Lord says, I'm making all things new. Um, the old things have passed away, and new things have come. I'm going to wipe every tear from every eye. Those are not realities that we're experiencing yet, but those are promises that definitely apply to us, and they give us a really important emotional tool, which is hope. Um, hope does not negate the reality of suffering. Hope does not water down um, confusion or difficulty that we might be facing or going through. But the promises of the Bible that about about future hopes, promises in the Bible about invisible realities, those are things that do, for me, they do change my perspective and they do give me comfort. Now, I want to address something that I think is really important, I'm, and I'm not sure, I'm, this may be something that either Matt or Jed breaks down, but I think one of the most harmful things that can happen is that when people talk about promises from the Scriptures in a way that they almost weaponize them so that you are not allowed to have emotions. Yeah. That's the kind of thing that is, a, it's, it's just a gigantic no, no. Like that's, we never want to do that with any biblical promises. Like, look, the Bible says that God is always at work um, and always working everything for the good who those, for those who love him. So no matter what you're going through, you're not allowed to feel sad or afraid or, or have any anxiety. Well, um, thanks, but no thanks. We never want to take the promises of scripture and weaponize them in such a way that we encourage the repression of emotions. And I'm going to prove that to you with some other scripture real quick, and then we need to kick this around. But the promises of scripture are comforting, and they are hopeful, but they don't negate suffering. And that is a very important thing to understand, because the Bible is not about the repression of emotion or the ignoring of suffering. And the the most clear and obvious proof that we could that we could point to with that is the fact that when Jesus went to the tomb of his friend Lazarus, Jesus knowing that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, that he was about to change all of their tears into a party, he wept over the tomb of Lazarus. He wept over the death of his friend. He not only not only did he allow and make room for the people who were suffering in the middle of their grief over the death of Lazarus. He too entered into that suffering and into that grief, and he felt it himself. Promises of Scripture are comforting and they're hopeful, but they are never to be used to encourage someone to repress the emotions that they're feeling. That's an excellent, excellent place to start off. That was beautifully put at every turn by Lee there. And Jed, what would we, what would we have to add to that? Lee has already told you all of it, so I'll just add a couple of quick things. So we're going to read together one of the very, very famous promises in the Bible. This is from Deuteronomy 31.8. says, The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Okay, well, that's cool. That sounds very inspirational. What do we do with that? I mean, is that is that a promise that's for you? Is it for somebody else? Like what? What do we do? These are fair questions. So if we read a little bit of context, here's what's happening. God's people is going from one place to another. There's actually a huge change that's taking place in leadership at this moment, and God's asking them to go do kind of a dangerous thing in a dangerous place. And so the first thing that we need to know is people are having all the negative emotions. 
Um, the idea that in some way this should negate emotions, like that's, you know, that's not even close to true. If, if someone is asking you to do something dangerous, asking you to do something hard, asking you to do something risky, there's a lot of change going on. You're going to have negative emotions about it. The whole point of this promise being made is because people aren't feeling too good. Like mm. if everybody's like, yeah, we could do it. Then probably we wouldn't need to take time to have like, Hey, it's cool, man. We'll figure it out. Like uh, that's just not how, how language works. So that was the context of what was going on. But does this mean anything to you? Does this mean anything for you? Well, I don't know. I, I think the answer is you have to decide if this means something for you, which I know is like, that's not a satisfying answer at all. You're welcome. Welcome to faith. You have to decide if this means something for you. Here's my experience. It does. In my experience, this is a promise that is just as applicable to you as it was to God's people in Deuteronomy 31.8. But you kind of have to decide that for yourself. And then, and this is the part that's really like, you should boo me on this because I wouldn't want to hear this either. It only matters if you do something with it. A promise is a form of insurance, generally speaking. And insurance only matters when you're doing things, right? Like there's a kind of insurance called travel insurance, right? Like if you're trying to go to, you know, uh, an exotic locale and I don't know, it, it gets hit by a hurricane or something, uh, travel insurance, it covers all of your expenses. You don't lose all that money. That's a neat idea. Okay. But it only matters if you travel, like having travel insurance and not traveling is not useful. Uh, that would just be a waste of money. There's a promise that God is making here because there's a thing he's asking his people to do. He's asking them to take on a big challenge. He's asking them to take a hard thing. Like, these aren't just pleasant platitudes. There, there's a point here. There's a thing God's asking his people to do, and he's saying, but I got you. I'm with you. I'm going to take care of you. In my life, I have found it to be true that this promise is true for me, but I, I kind of only really see that when I start doing the hard things that I think God is asking me to do, when I start doing the, the things that feel scary and they feel overwhelming. And what I have found is that in those moments, I have access to more strength and more courage than I would have expected. That there is a reservoir of strength and of courage that is much deeper than I would have expected. Yeah. Which is exactly what this promise is saying. The promise is not saying it's going to be easy. The, the whole point of the promise is that it will not be. The, po- it, the promise is not saying that it won't be scary. The whole point of the promise is that it will be scary. The promise is you will have what you need in order to deal with the difficulty and the scary and the challenging. You will have that when you need it. I am with you. That's what the promise is saying. And so is it for you? I've certainly found that it's for me, given that I'm just a dude. If it's true for me, I strongly suspect it's true for you as well. But you got to live it out, man. You got to put it to the test. You, you got to you know, see if it's true for you. I believe that you will find it. But I think that like so many of God's promises, we've got to put them in motion in order to see what might be there. Absolutely right. Um, I, I agree with everything these guys said. I will add onto the end of it um using as an example the the great verse that lee mentioned there is revelation 21 3 and 4 and i heard a loud voice from the throne saying look god's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them they will be his people and god himself will be with them and be their god he will wipe every tear from every eye he will there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away uh, it's a beautiful verse. It's a beautiful thought. It is also unimaginably big and layered and detailed and um, no more uh, mourning or crying or pain. 
And I, I've always just loved the poetry of that last word. For the old order of things has passed away. As you say in your question, n- none of us can even imagine what that's going to look like because we live in the old order of things. It is right. how things are done. So the idea that there's this big promise that one day things won't be like that for any of us, there's nested within that an almost infinite amount of little promises that uh, it will be less like that. We will see moments where it's not like that. It will be uh, not like that for one person for a little bit of time. And the things that define what we would consider the order of this day, um, scarcity and injustice and struggle and pain and uh, isolation and all the things that might uh, mark a fallen world, we occasionally uh, see glimpses of something beyond that and something outside that. And there is in that uh, the promise and all the little promises point towards the bigger promise, uh, both in a Christmas and Easter way. And those may be the normal examples we see of that, of all the little promises pointing to something, something bigger. But I think in, in a way that's true of every promise in the Bible. And I totally understand what you're saying. Cause I think that is a big part of what's frustrating about it because we're, we're never going to get the whole thing uh, while we are on this side of eternity. Cause we can't even imagine what the whole thing would be of any of these promises of, of not being scared of, uh, there being a different way of going about things. We can, you know, as Paul says, we can see through a mirror darkly, but we can't ever fully grasp around these things, but that doesn't mean it's not good. That doesn't mean it's not, uh, something that we're moving towards. That doesn't mean just because you're never not going to get the whole thing doesn't mean you shouldn't enjoy and, uh, revel in those glimpses and those bits and those bites at it you get. And, uh, some of this is going to lean into, um, embracing a certain amount of uncertainty, but that is okay. And that is the way, way it's going to go actually transitions very nicely into our next question, which comes in and says, I've been working on making my faith less academic. I feel like I was raised that Christianity was a series of correct answers to questions that you had to be sure of. I've come to realize that there's a lot of mystery and stuff. I don't fully understand. I know that's okay but I'm still not sure how I'm supposed to hold that sense of mystery. And again, uh, kind of borders with some of what we were saying in that first question. I think another, another very cool idea. And Jed, where would we start off with this idea of mystery? Man, it's a great question. It's really, really good. Um, one of the things, you know, so my, my educational background is in the sciences, right? And one of the things that you talk a lot about in in the sciences and especially in engineering is the idea of approximations, right? You, you ask, how does, you know, a ball, you, you hold it out and you drop it and it falls to the ground. Like, how does that work? And so there's this first approximation. Well, there's, there's gravity and it, you know, it drags it down. And then there's a second approximation and the second approximation starts to bring in things like wind resistance, you know, and then, you start to get into the next approximation, which has to do with the geometry of the ball. And you can go deeper and you can go deeper and you can go deeper. And part of what you realize is we're attempting to describe something that is incredibly, incredibly, incredibly complex. Mm. We can say a little bit about it from Jump Street. There is, there's mass, there's gravity, and those two interact and the ball falls to the ground. And that's useful. And it's really useful if you're an engineer because you can build stuff, even with really simple approximations. But that doesn't mean that you have like the perfect understanding of how gravity works. Cause like basically no one has a perfect understanding of how gravity works. And I don't think that we give ourselves the 
permission to be honest that actually spiritual stuff is a lot like that, mm. that we're dealing with approximations. Um, we're trying to describe the indescribable. And if you don't believe me, try to describe in a cogent and simple way, the Trinity, yeah. this is left as an exercise for the reader. The Bible is quite clear that God exists in three persons, father, son, and Holy spirit. Take your time and try and explain how that works. We'll wait. <laughs> so we're dealing with approximations. And, and what that means is that at the end of the day, we're dealing with stuff that we don't fully know. We have an idea about it. We have a sense about it. And that's cool and that's important. But we don't, we don't know it. And that actually goes literally exactly to the verse that Matt referenced just a moment ago. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is verse 12. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. This is an amazing statement from Paul because he's saying, look, there's far more that we don't know than what we do know. Yeah. We see little pieces, we see little glimpses, we have a sense kind of sort of how things kind of sort of work, but that doesn't mean that we, that we know everything. What he's describing there, and the thing I want to encourage you with, is holding mystery means embracing humility. Mm. It means embracing the fact, I don't have all the answers. I don't see all the angles. I don't have a perfect systematic theology that can explain it all and wrap it all up in a neat little package. In fact, one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible is towards the end of Job, when God shows up and speaks out of the storm and there's kind of, and, and basically God, you know, poses some largely rhetorical questions to Job and then says, okay, Job, your turn, talk. And Job says something really amazing. He says, surely I have spoken of things too wonderful for me. Yeah. I think we very rarely permit ourselves to admit, man, there's stuff that's over my head. There's stuff that's over that is too wonderful for me. There's stuff that's above my pay grade. There's stuff that I don't get. There's nothing wrong with me wanting to have the answers, but I don't have them. There is stuff that is just beyond my can. Humility is a beautiful thing. It's a godly thing. And here's the next thing that happens, and, and we're going to find this to be true in Paul's verse. When we embrace humility, we get to embrace kindness and compassion. Because here's mm. the next verse that happens. So he says, then I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. So this admission, I don't see it all. I don't know it all. Now. These three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Living on this earth with incomplete knowledge, seeing dimly through a glass, the greatest of these is not knowledge. The greatest of these yeah. is not certainty. The greatest of these is not confidence. The greatest of these is not having all the Bible answers. The greatest of these is love. A humble Amen. person can say, look, I believe there's a God and I believe he loves me. I don't have a ton of answers past that. I'm going to go now show love to other people. If you want to hold on to mystery, that is how I would encourage you to do it. Embrace the power of humility and let that drive you to simply love your fellow man in Jesus' name. A wonderful place to start that off. Lee, what would we add to that? It's a fantastic answer. And, and it made me think about a conversation I was having one time with, uh, with our friend, friend of the show, friend of 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 all the ministry stuff that we're involved in, Christy Fox, who is a has a bachelor's degree in in biology, and we were having this conversation about even some of Jesus's teachings about plants, about water, 
about all kinds of things that people had a certain level of understanding about when he uttered the words, and then how much we understand about what he was saying now that we have like an electron microscope, and how everything that he said just became magnitude, like degrees of magnitude cooler. Like it's all still exactly as true as when he said it. But now that we know so much more about the way plants work, the way water works, the way the the way all of that stuff works in the way that he created them, all of the like the more he lets us understand, the mystery just gets gets cooler and cooler in all of those layers. It's such a really cool thing. One thing I want to say about this whole situation is that believing the Bible does not mean that you have to believe everybody's interpretation of the Bible. Yeah. And that's a really really important thing. Um, you know, like trying to understand all the ins and outs of theology and stuff like that. Simply saying being comfortable with the idea of like I have found and I believe that the Bible is true. That doesn't mean I hold with everybody's interpretation of the Bible. And that's a really really important thing because People do some funky stuff with the scriptures. They make it say all kinds of stuff so that they can, you know, just so that they can be on the things that they are on. I will also say that for me personally, I am just a whole lot more comfortable these days with saying, I don't know, like somebody asks a question about some finer point of theology and stuff like that. And I'm just, I don't know. The guy that trained me in ministry when I was, you know, uh, when I was like, I guess I was 20, 21 years old or something and saying, you know, does, would it be important if I want to be in ministry for me to go get like a degree from a seminary? And he was like, absolutely not. And, and I was like, well, I thought that was what, uh, guys in ministry had to do. And he was like, no, I mean, ministry is an apprentice art. You can just train to be a pastor from another pastor. Um, and you don't have to get the ministry degree. He said, um, the fact is that a lot of ministry degrees, they don't measure the things that actually happen in ministry. And anybody that's been in ministry for a long time will tell you that a lot of the finer points of theology that people want to have academically worked out, they simply never come up when you're doing actual ministry. They just, you you don't ever actually meet those things in the real world. Um, The things that people are debating in an academic sense about certain scriptures and about the way things work with, you know, even like Jeb was talking about, whether that be theories of the Trinity or theories of the atonement, which there are lots of these. There are books and volumes and whole courses and everything that people have written about the Trinity or about the atonement or about propitiation and and all expiation and all of the words. And in my experience, when somebody needs help, and somebody needs someone to listen to them, they don't care what you know about those things. They just want somebody who's willing to listen. They want someone who's willing to care, someone who's willing to come alongside them, walk alongside them through a difficult thing, um, put their arm around them when they're hurting, um, and um, give a good word when they need a word of advice, to pray for them when they're struggling and they don't know how to pray for themselves. Ministry almost always involves you carrying a load for someone else, whether that be emotional or a physical need or something, you meeting a need that someone needs help with. 
it almost never involves you having a lockdown answer on some academic finer point of theology. It, when you're out there meeting people's needs, it simply won't come up. And that's an important thing. Not everybody's interpretation is something that you have to sign off on. And you can do a whole lot of ministry and have a whole lot of question marks about almost everything in the scriptures. That's also incredibly well put. I think it's, it's such a great point. And I really like the comparison to the sciences. I, th- I think it is important because if you think about you know the term theology, it is was started as and definitely has become people trying to do uh, God stuff in a scientific way, kind of. You get your systematic theology and all that that whatnot, but. In my mind, they kind of, a lot of that discourse and a lot of that thought is missing what makes science really work, which is scrapping old ideas and coming up with new ideas when they don't uh, fit your schema. So you take something, I don't understand much science at all, but I know that for a long time uh, we thought, here's how uh, physics works. It's Newtonian, it's this, that, and the other. And then all of a sudden, once we got, as Lee was mentioning earlier, electron microscopes, you could look at what's happening on a subatomic level. None of that stuff works the same way. Right. And here's what, as I, far as I'm aware, uh, the entire scientific community did not rise as one is say, well, this stuff doesn't follow the rules we laid out. Therefore, it cannot be a thing. <laughs> and the people who did it are too woke or whatever. I don't know. Um, you science, good science, so I understand it, is willing to scrap what it thought to deal with new thoughts and new information and new ways it has to go. Obviously, that's a little different with something like theology, which in theory is not getting new information. But as these guys are pointing out, there's a bit capital T kind of theology as a subject. But then there's every individual's personal theology, which should be onboarding new ideas and new experiences and new thoughts as you gain those things. And as Lee very astutely pointed out, pretty much all of that capital T theology is just most of it is one or two dudes, uh, personal theology that they wrote down and they were decent writers. So eh, there's not a lot of peer reviewed theology. So we don't really have that part of the, the scientific process as well. But one thing that theology does share with science again, could in theory, and I don't think it rises to it very often is science is trying to describe something it observes. It is not creating anything. There is no such thing as hydrogen. There is, a, there is an element that has one proton, one neutron, and one electron, and we've all decided to call that hydrogen. Hydrogen is not a thing. It is a label we, that people came up with to describe and talk about a thing they were observing. They did not right. create it by speaking it into existence. In the same way as Lee pointed, has pointed out, you know, the theories of eschatology and Christology and atonement and I think those are all human attempts to describe something supernatural. They are not in any way ever going to be total or correct right. or infallible because they're just trying to describe something in terms people can understand it. And especially, excuse me for interrupting, Matt, but especially when 
everybody that gets the mic is a part of the dominant culture for, I don't know, you know, all the centuries. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, everything has a perspective, you know, uh, Jed mentioned his training is in the sciences. Lee and my training is, is in, uh, whatever the opposite of the sciences and liberal arts stuff. And the first <laughs> thing they taught me in liberal arts school was as in studying history is there's no such thing as just somebody writing down what happened. Yeah. Who they are, who they're writing to, what they think of themselves, what they think of their audience, all of that informs what they're writing down. And so much more so does it go for religious writing. The idea of I'm just breaking this down and it's just a journalistic view from nowhere. And I just stick to the, the theology, the dry theology facts. That is, that is not something human beings are capable of. So if someone's telling you that's what they're doing, that's a little out there. So, but where that comes into your very, very good question about mystery to me is if what we're trying to do is describe what we can see of something, then to me, that takes a lot of pressure off the idea of uh, correctness or staying in between the lines or um, being theologically correct because we have this, you know, this infinite uh, object or canvas or whatever you want to think of it as. And we can see a little corner of it and we're trying to figure that out as best we can. And maybe as you get older, you see new angles and you see new light reflections and your picture becomes different and it grows and it gets uh, hopefully more full. It will never be anywhere near full. Again, we are talking about the infinite. This idea that we talked about on the show before that if you study really hard and, th- and go to the right schools and think the right thoughts, that you'll understand like 95% of stuff about God. <laughs> and then you'll kind of fill in that last little bit when you go to the great beyond. No, 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 no. That's, that's super, super not how it works. But in, in, to me, being comfortable with the mystery is that idea of f- finding more of what you're looking for and rooting yourself in, as Jed point, started us with, those very very small number of things that are in there in black and white are non-negotiable are definitely true. Everything else, if it was as important as those things, it would be put in those terms as well. Right. So it's probably not. And there leaves a lot of room for differences in ideas between you and other people, between you and other versions of yourself at different times. None of that's wrong. None of that's a failing. None of that's, not understanding the material before you. Um, it is a, a journey and it is one that must be experienced and cannot be done solely in a classroom environment. So it's very, very good. as where you started your question that you're trying to let go of some of that idea. Move on to our final question here. It comes in and says, what is the limit of having grace for others? If grace is unmerited favor, I know it's good to show that to other people, but at some point, if you don't merit favor with how you act, it is harmful to show you favor, right? Again, very another very cool question. I really like the way you you put that because I think uh, grace is good. Do grace is definitely one of those ideas that's put out there and maybe not given enough context or enough thinking through of what people from up front are actually saying when they say that. So, Lee, where where would we start off with breaking this down? Well, I think the place that I would start out is that I personally have received grace from the Lord Jesus, and I am very thankful for that. I did not earn his favor. I was given it for free, and that is very wonderful. Um, what I would say is it is generous 
to to be gracious to people and to offer them you know uh like we're going to be in a relationship and I would love to be gracious towards you and offer you grace at the exact same time the grace that the Lord Jesus has given me I do not have the capability of offering that to everybody in my life and every actual relationship that is healthy is going to have boundaries. Every human relationship that is a healthy relationship is going to have boundaries. And exactly as you say, there are things that if you do them in our relationship, the nature of our relationship is going to change. Now, let me go back for a second and say that Jesus has given and given for free grace that is unmerited favor that if you call out on him, you will not lose it. If we are in a relationship and certain things happen or there are certain behaviors, I may have to draw a boundary and um, and that may change the nature of our relationship. It is good to be gracious, and yet every human relationship has to have boundaries. In um, 12-step programs, for people who are in a support role, um, there there is a... There's another program that's called Al-Anon for the the family members of those who are in 12-step programs. And just like AA and other 12-step programs have a lot of, you know, amazing little kind of cliche sayings that are all amazingly true, Al-Anon is the same way. And one of the phrases that Al-Anon has is, your love is killing your loved one. In certain extreme cases, there are things that you can do if you if if your policy is Jesus gave me grace, so I'm just going to give complete grace to this person, even though their behaviors are killing them and harming everybody in their family. That's called enabling. Al-Anon's put it in a way that we can really, really understand. Your love is killing your loved one. And of obviously, that is a very extreme case. But in, again, in every single healthy human relationship, there are going to be boundaries. I do not have the kind of infinite heart that the Lord Jesus has. And therefore, there may be things that occur in our relationship where I have to draw a firm boundary. And that is that is for your good, and that is for my good, and that is for actually the good of our relationship. To love someone is to always be about their best. And that may mean a, the setting of and maintaining of a tough boundary. That's not me saying I don't believe in grace, but that is me um, acknowledging this is how human relationships work. And so it's one of those things of like, it's, it's a simplistic idea that since Jesus offers grace, every human being is supposed to offer a bl- basically a, a behavioral blank check to every single other person. That's not the way the world works. Um, we have to set and maintain healthy boundaries if we're going to actually love each other. A fantastic place to start that off. And Jed, where do we pick things up? I think Lee has, has given you everything that you need to know on this. I just want to add kind of some practical details in um, to, to build on it. Uh, there's really kind of three questions I'd encourage you to look at uh, with any relationship in your life. The first is, in my life, uh, in some way, is my life made better by this person being in it? Is this, is this making things better for me at all in any way, even a little bit? It, I think it's, for folks who've grown up in church, I think it feels real weird to ask that, but that's actually a great question to ask. It, does this person's presence in my life make anything better for me at all, even a little bit? 
That's question one. Question two is, if especially if not, am I benefiting them in some way that I have chosen? Not just am I benefiting them in some way, but like, have I chosen to benefit them in that way? Like, I, I knew what this was, and I took this on. Then the third question is, if it's neither of those two, what is this relationship? Mm. If this yeah. isn't good for me, and it's not good for them in a way that I'm cool with, then what is this? What, what, what are we doing here? Because I think for a lot of us, you know, man, here's one of the things about kind of messed up relationships is it's easy to kind of get into them and into them deeper than you'd think without really realizing what's going on. You know, you just, um, at least in my experience, you know, it's, it's easy to be like, oh, well, I, sure. Yeah, oh, okay. And then, you know, weeks pass by, months pass by, and all of a sudden you've got this person where, man, there's, there's nothing positive here at all for either party. And yet we're, we're continuing to do this. So if you find yourself again, I want to encourage you to, to give yourself complete permission to, to do an inventory, uh, you know, of, of people, you know, in your, in your life where <laughs> are they making my life better? Am I making their life better in some way? And if not, what is this? And I want to give you, I want to encourage you to give yourself permission to having done that inventory to take some of these relationships in different directions. Mm -hmm. Um, some of that may be about restructuring. Some of that may be about ending. Um, you do not need to maintain every relationship that's in your life. Amen. Um, you, you do not owe that to people. Um, and particularly outside of like, you know, a marriage, which is a little bit of a special case. It's not like you, you know, it's just a little bit more complicated or maybe like your children, which again, it's a little bit more complicated. Like you, you just don't owe people very much, man. You, you don't owe them your, your presence. You, you don't, you don't owe them putting up with their presence. And so doing some of that inventorying work and then saying, what kind of changes do I need to make? This is a good thing on a lot of levels. And, and one of the levels that it's good on is that there are probably people in your life that you would like to be present for more than you currently can. And just like Lee was suggesting, because you're not Jesus, you don't have infinite wells of emotional energy or time or money or being cool about stuff. And if you're spending all of those resources on people where it's not really a good fit, not really a good idea, that means you're not spending it on the people you wish you were spending it on. Yeah. Um, freeing up resources lets you reallocate them, lets you spend it where you want to spend it. That's a good thing, man. That's not, that's not a bad thing. Bottom line is in life, we're going to have to tell some people no in order to be able to tell other people yes. Think through who you want to say no to and who you want to say yes to. Make sure that it's in line with your values, your priorities, what you care about with your faith, with your faith journey, um, so that you can have confidence in where you're saying no and where you're saying yes. I think that's a great place to, to land that and such an important point. And it takes us back to exactly where Lee started us off. Um, yes, Jesus had uh, infinite grace for us. He has infinite grace for this person who's being a pain in your end. That doesn't mean you have to. You have to work with what you've got. And um, Jesus did not have to worry about being in a position where someone could, could harm him. He did not have to. Jesus sees a version and a potential in other people that we simply cannot see. And that is a big part of what makes him God and what makes us 
very much not. Uh, you do not owe anyone infinite access to you. Um, and no one should expect that. But if anyone is using the, well, you know, it says forgive others as others have forgiven. So you, you gotta, you don't gotta, as I pointed out on the show before, the whole point of this religion is you don't gotta. The guy who was nailed to a piece of wood gets into the same heaven as the rest of us who did nothing but be a thief, get caught and then say, I would like the forgiveness part, please. He gets in. It's in yep. just as much as any of us. <laughs> There's no no part of you have got to do something that will make your life worse. Uh, and again, it is one of those things with boundaries. There are some buttons that when someone tries to push, we can be pretty sure they're not ready to move on into a healthy relationship. And you've got to put up with my nonsense is definitely a big one of those. Yeah. Whether that's for just purely emotional guilt, whether that's for, for religious reasons, whatever re- reason someone is pushing on. Hey, what if I just didn't change anything, but there were no consequences for me? That Jesus, no part of the grace of God Almighty is saying that you have to let other people live in a world where there's no consequences for their behavior towards you. That's just way out of there, and you don't have to entertain that idea. And here's the beautiful thing, and it goes back to a little bit of what we were saying with the, uh, with the mystery and actually ties all these two questions together. You also don't have to have an airtight theological answer for why you're not going to put up with their nonsense anymore. Yeah. You have freedom in Christ. And part of that freedom is to say, I don't actually have a verse for this, but no, yeah. <laughs> I'm not doing it. Don't need to read a Bible commentary to justify why I'm not doing it. I'm pretty sure God doesn't want me to have toxic relationships. Don't have a chapter and verse on that, but no, that is a beautiful, beautiful thing about being washed by the blood is having the confidence and the ability to say things like that, because you do know that at the core of all this, God wants what's best for you. He wants to have healthy relationships that add to your life. He wants that for that, that other person too. But if they're not, in a, as these guys pointed out, if they're not in a position where they can receive that, then you are not in any way bound to try to j- crowbar that into their life against their will. Not a good setup for you. Not something God wants for you. And we are sure of that. If you have a question for us, say that podcast at gmail.com, thebridgechicago.tumblr.com slash ask. If you want to keep that entirely anonymous, we're going to tell you the song this week. Uh, Jed brought up Deuteronomy chapter 31. This is a great tune from the ever-reclusive and funky pool house guru based on that very verse. Deuteronomy 31 6. Hey, that. Thanks for listening. Just remember, we love you. God loves you. There's nothing you can do about it. Do not be terrified. Do not be terrified. Do not be terrified. Don't be afraid of them. Bye.